Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Now, since we last were with you, we've had the 45th installment of the Novak Djokovic against Rafael Nadal rivalry. Garbina Muguruza has continued her superb form, winning the big title in Beijing. And Ivo Karlovic has broken a world record. And it's not for being the tallest man in the world. As well as talking about all of that, we're going to be hearing from the former world number two and twice a French Open finalist, Alex Karecha, reminiscing about his first encounter with Rafael Nadal when Nadal was just a 16-year-old. And he'll tell us about what life is like coaching Andy Murray. In my word, it was interesting. Catherine Whitaker did that interview, joining me from afar. My name is David Law. I'm a commentator for BBC Radio 5 Live and BT Sport. But Catherine Whittaker, you've just got off a plane, haven't you? Where have you been? Yes, I'm not quite as afar as I was a few hours ago. I've been in Mallorca. I've been swanning around Mallorca. Uh, and now I'm back in uh, cold London, which is, which is just fine. London's just fine. But Mallorca was, was pretty lovely as well. Uh, absolutely. It's a great... Uh, Great thing to say about the job that she's just been working about 16, 18 hours a day doing, swanning around in Mallorca. But basically, that is what you do, isn't it, Catherine? Because you uh, you were there working at an ATB Champions Tour event, which is how you came to be interviewing Alex Karecha. Uh, and it sounds as though it was a pretty good event, and he ended up winning it, didn't he? Yeah, I have perfected the art of swanning around and calling it work. If anybody out there is looking to make a career out of that, I highly recommend it. Actually, no, uh, she, does, she doesn't ad- recommend it because if you end up doing that, you may not be able to do it anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously I'm understating, you know, obviously there is there is a certain amount of uh, hard work and, and everything involved, but it, you can't, you can't call it work. It would be, uh, it, I just... Still pinch myself every day that I get to do this kind of thing. And uh, it was an absolutely fantastic event. A really one of the best Champions Tour events I've been to recently. We've got, I mean, every Champions Tour event is so different, but this one really captured everything that's uh, special about the Champions Tour. The, the players had an absolute whale of a time. None of them wanted to come home. Uh, if you check out the ATP Champions Tour Facebook page, there is an absolute treat uh, of uh, a photo gallery of uh, the legends of the Champions Tour 
attempting to do paddle boarding in the slightly rough seas of the Mediterranean yesterday. That was one of my highlights of the weekend. And uh, a Spanish champion in Alex Gretcher and a very worthy one at that. What a lovely chap he is and, and a very well-received champion in, uh, in Mallorca. Yeah, he uh, ended up beating Thomas Enquist in the final. There was also Tim Hemman there, Thomas Muster, Pat Cash. It was a great field of players. And uh, yeah, have a little look at the uh, ATP Champions Tour Facebook page and f- see what Catherine was up to. All those photos are ones that she has taken over the last few days. And the circuit all ends at the Royal Albert Hall, the 2nd to the 6th of December. Many of those that I've just mentioned will be there. Henman and Pat Cash. Uh, John McEnroe will be there as well, as will Mansour Barami and Henri Leconte, who is in Mallorca as well. So loads of big names there at the Royal Albert Hall, the Champions Tennis, 2nd to the 6th of December. Now, Catherine, we mentioned over the weekend, while you were swanning about in Mallorca, Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic were going at it for the 45th time. That was their 45th meeting and Djokovic won 6-2-6-2, narrowing the head-to-head to to 23-22. He's behind now is Djokovic. That means that he's now within one of Nadal. He's also level with Federer at 21 all. I mean, he is really starting to close these guys down. It was... It was an interesting match. I know you didn't get a chance to watch it because of the work you were doing over there, but I saw it and it was it really was interesting to watch the way Nadal came out. He'd beaten Fabio Fanini in the previous round, getting a bit of revenge for the US Open where he lost from two sets up. But even though he was trying to be really aggressive with Djokovic in the first set and he was having a degree of success in games and winning certain points, with that aggression and hitting his forehand hard, Djokovic just looked so unperturbed by what Nadal could offer. And it was, it did make me wonder, you know, are, are we moving on now in terms of of generation here? Is Djokovic going with the next generation, so to speak, or, or moving away from the current one? And is Nadal ever going to be able to, to recapture that sort of level? Because he suddenly looked just a little bit impotent compared to Djokovic. And it reminded me of a a Leighton Hewitt who was dominant in 2001, who's suddenly unable to carry his power into the next generation. Maybe it's just a question of timing and confidence for Nadal, but it it did concern me a little bit on Nadal's part. Yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, Nadal was a huge talking point just generally in in Mallorca amongst the the legends players that were out there and then became more of a talking point obviously once he reached that final and going into that the final against Djokovic and the consensus seemed to be that his issues are purely mental, especially given what he's talked about the fact that he feels that he's practicing pretty well more than pretty well he feels he's practicing really well he's just struggling to translate that practice court form onto the match court so the consensus amongst the champions uh, was very much that the issues for Nadal are mental and that all he needs is to reverse the momentum almost to to turn the that sort of streak of losing the tight matches losing the really big matches into winning them and, and most of them seem to think that it would only take you know, one big match for him to to come through it, to turn a losing position into a winning one for, for that switch to flick and for Nadal to get back to where we all feel that he belongs. But I agree with you. I mean, as you said, I didn't watch that final, so I can't 
analyze it technically myself but from everything I've read about it and from everything I was seeing on social media during the match not many people were talking about the mental aspects of it most people were talking about technically and physically Nadal isn't in this you know Djokovic is is completely winning the physical and technical battle here so uh I mean, if you accept as a given the fact that Nadal is having mental struggles, if you then add into that equation the fact that the game might possibly have moved on from him or or possibly it could be that he's just lost that extra percentage of power which makes all the difference, it's hard not to see it as an enormously uphill battle for Rafa to get back to where he was or even really close to where he was. Yeah, it's it is an interesting one because I think we should also add that he did look as though he injured himself in the second set. He had some kind of foot problem. We understand that that isn't going to stop him from playing in Shanghai. He is there. He's intending to play, but it did probably impede him a little bit and like I said, many of the games were competitive in the first set against Djokovic and he was throwing the big forehand at him with some some success in terms of its penetration, in terms of its accuracy. But the noticeable thing was, and I compared it to when Mike Tyson suddenly started to throw his bombs at opponents and they would seem to bounce off rather than deck the opponent. And that's the feeling that Djokovic gave off, that he could just shrug off the best that Nadal could throw at him. And if you look at the actual statistics now, he's won seven of their last eight meetings. And in in those seven matches that uh, Djokovic has won, Nadal's only won one set. Three of those were on clay as well, three of those matches. So that's pretty rough reading from a Rafael Nadal perspective. I mean, I would never write the guy off until he actually retires because I think his powers of, of recovery and his his ability is, is enormous. And, and I, I still hold out hope that he will come again. And But I do seem to have spent... Basically, the last year, if you think but all the way back to when we were in Melbourne, Catherine, I remember sitting there with yourself and Gigi Salmon uh, in the beautiful outdoor garden square area there, making the case for why Nadal could still be a contender at the top of the game. And I'm slightly running out of excuses now and because he's been around a whole circuit of the calendar and none of these situations have actually ended up turning out as I suspected they might do, really, on his behalf. But you never know. Maybe an off-season and uh, a couple of big wins will do it. We shall see. Now, um, we also have had a a victory for Garbinia Muguruza at that tournament in Beijing, and she is becoming now a really big contender, I think, for Singapore for the end-of-year finals. She's qualified there. She's... um, effectively in second position now that Serena Williams has has withdrawn from that tournament. And moreover, I think going forward, if she can continue this level and this focus, in terms of her sheer tools, she is a really formidable proposition for the future. Without question yeah she she's done really well to rather steal the limelight well slightly steal the limelight away from 
from Madison Keys, I suppose, who, if you if you look back a year ago, I'm not for a moment saying that Madison Keys isn't going to make it or necessarily won't be a number one at all. I think she's a tremendous talent. But if I cast my mind back to, what, eight months ago when I did that interview with Brad Gilbert in uh, Delray Beach for the podcast, he was saying Madison Keys next new number one for sure. He wasn't mentioning Belinda Bencic and he certainly wasn't mentioning Garbinia Muguruza. I mean, she she had announced herself onto the stage a little bit last year with that victory over Serena at the French Open. But what she's done this year, obviously at Wimbledon, but then really backing it up at this stage of the season as well. Obviously a slight blip for her at the US Open. But, you know, she came up against the in-form Joe Conta. Um, as you say, no pressure or anything, Garbinia, but everything is completely falling into place for her, isn't it? <laughs> no I mean, pressure. a gap is going to, a gap is going to open up. And as you say, she has every single tool. I mean, it's, it, it's the, the tennis world is going to be there for her on a plate. And all she has to do is keep working hard and and grab at it. I say no pressure. I've just mounted the pressure on in a quite monumental way. But I mean, I, I absolutely believe that. I really think the tennis world is there for her, for for Belinda Bencic as well, though they're two completely different players. And I still I still absolutely put Madison Keys in that category. But I, I think Garbina Muguruza has, has taken a big step ahead of Madison Keys just at the moment in terms of their development. And just before Brad Gilbert writes in and starts to give me in particular a very hard time, because we know he does like to do that now and again, uh, we should also say that Brad Gilbert has been in touch as well at Tennis Podcast, which you can do as well on Twitter, to say to me, how is my prediction for a monster year for Novak Djokovic looking? He said that very recently. And let's be fair, he got it's, that one absolutely right, bang on, Brad. didn't he? To be it's fair, he did. looking all right. Yeah, he did. He got it absolutely bang on. And of course, at that stage, he'd only won the Australian. Uh, we hadn't even gone into Indian Wells in Miami at that point. It was before all of that. Um, so he couldn't really have got it more bang on, frankly. I mean, it's as monstrous it could have been really without winning that French Open final. It's, I mean, yeah. Props to you, Brad. Absolutely. As an American would say. Take it to the woodshed, Brad, or whatever you're talking about, because I don't understand half of it, but it's always entertaining. Now, uh, we also should give a a mention to Stan Wawrinka, who won a title last week as well in Tokyo. He continues to mop up uh, the titles as he goes along his merry way as well. And what about Ivo Karlovic, Catherine? Broke the world record for the most number of aces ever by a player breaking the record of our old friend uh, Goran Ivanisevic. Pretty pretty impressive for Ivo. Yeah, I'm so glad that he now formally holds that record because if you look at the stats, and really the A stats should be averaged out over a number of sets or even number of games, it's almost a slightly misleading stat, isn't it? Pure ace count. Karlovic has, has overtaken Goran uh, Goran, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I'm All I'm doing is quoting the stats here. He's done it in significantly fewer matches than, than Goran did it. So, uh, I mean, it, it's every, every inch deserved, uh, no pun intended, to 6 foot 11 inch Ivo Karlovic, that he is, cl- claims all the official serving 
titles uh, because he's he's well. I think to call him the it's difficult to call him the best server of all time, isn't it? Because it, he, he's six foot eleven. Of of course, it. I mean, so much of it is about the height. To call it the best suggests that it it's necessarily the the best technique of all time, and I can't. I can't comment really on how much of it is technique and how much of it is the sheer height from which it's coming down. But then, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you trying to take credit away from me for my serve? You're trying to you're trying to do down my serve here just because I happen to be tall. Yeah, this is all just re- a really long winded, thinly veiled way of uh, mocking your serve, David. That's all this right. is. Well, I'm not having it. Evo, I think you're brilliant. Best server in the world. Uh, Now, we have the tournament in Shanghai this week. The Masters 1000, the Rolex Masters in Shanghai. And all 20 of the top players in the world are there, including Roger Federer, who's making his first appearance of the Asian Swing, and Andy Murray, his first tournament appearance or first match appearance since that Davis Cup semi-final, which we remember so well. It's the only tournament he says he's going to play in this swing of tournaments, and he'll eventually most likely get to, I th- I think he will play the ATP World Tour Finals in the end, certainly one or two suggestions in the media that he will. I, I think he will. Catherine, as we have been speaking about, has talked to Alex Karecha, who coached Andy Murray for quite a while uh, in a period alongside Miles McLaggen. And Catherine asked him what he's like to work with, not just as a player, but as a person. He he is one of the most generous guy I ever met. He is fantastic, but he was very shy and he was very introvert, you can say. Um, and that makes him feel that uh, people don't don't know him much. So I think it was good for him to open up a little bit and to show some emotions and maybe do some interviews, you know, to make people know him better. And and then they will realize how, how good Andy can be as a as a human being and as a, and as a boy. The thing is because his character or his mood on the course sometimes a little, you know, it's a little bit like the way he is sometimes when he complains or when he's angry or so. And then people think that, that he is the way he is. But it's just on the court that sometimes behaves like that. But now he controls that very much. And and he's showing a lot of emotion on the court. And that's that's very good because I think people love that. People need emotion on the court. You know, they don't like to see people like, I don't know, like frozen on the court. You know, they like to see characters and they like to see guys that they're showing all they have inside the, the body and their blood and and Andy does that and I think that's why they they start realizing how how good can Andy be for them how frustrating did you find that when you worked with him that sort of streak he has in him where he sometimes behaves in a certain way on the court because he's not like that at all off the court no. is he? he's a very grown-up well-spoken human being but he obviously has that in him that some is something comes over him on the court doesn't it did you find that frustrating as a coach or advisor um no we 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 didn't know each other that much but after just a little bit we spent a week and we felt like we know each other for so long and i i think we really have an unbelievable relationship and I felt like when I started with him, uh, I wanted to, to teach him a lot of things, you know, to, to 
sort of like tell him things about life, you know, about to to how to behave with maybe outside the court, inside the court with the people, you know. And and it was great. He was listening to me a lot. He respects me a lot. We never had any discussion, never. And and that was great. But it was a period where I, where it was not easy for me to travel. Uh, we felt that he needed someone like really with him like most of the time to achieve his goals and he found that he found Danny by Berdu to travel with him and then Lender which helped him a lot and it was great because the main goal for me was that Andy could win his slams and, and he did it and even if it was, it was not on my period but uh, I was very happy to see that he was pleased to tell me after he won those slams how how much I helped him at the time or so so still today we text each other I went to his wedding you know so for me Andy is a very very special guy you must have been very proud and pleased to see what a great year he had mm. on the clay mm. this year in particular do you did you see anything in the way he was playing on the clay that that you helped him with <laughs> well that would be very cocky to say that but uh, <laughs> it's okay to say uh, no I, I felt like uh he he's got an enormous potential and he just need to try whatever he feels inside his heart and then let it go you know and i felt he he could do a lot of things on the clay but he needed to spend more time and he did it this year he went to barcelona we spent time together some days i went to life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. See him practice. Some days we had dinner together, you know, and I can see that he was willing to spend time on the clay and slide on the clay and be patient on the clay, you know. And he can play with a lot of height because his forehand, he can hit with a lot of topspin as well. His serve was a more, better percentage, you know. His backhand is always great. So I felt like he he was doing great. And it's not like he did something that I told him before. Well, you know that there are times in life where you tell people something and it takes a while for them to, to understand or to realize or to see how they do it or how they need to do it. And, and I felt Andy was in his way to do a lot of things. 
But it, it was a matter of time. It was a matter of time that he needs to take all the pieces of the puzzle together and put them together and see if he can be a better player. And what I'm more happy to see Andy, or happier to see Andy, is that his consistency is much better right now. He's not, you know, just playing one tournament and then he's losing three first round. No, no. He's very, you know, he's very solid. He's very consistent. And that helps his ranking. And that's why he's number three in the world right now, I guess. He's got an enormous, huge clay court test coming up, that Davis Cup final for yeah. GB. You know how big it can be, what it can mean to win a Davis Cup for your country. You've also been Davis Cup captain yeah. for Spain. How big is this for Andy? You must see in him how much it's meant to him just to get his, his country this far in the competition. Well, I, I think... It's amazing when they've, what they've done because there are a lot of countries which they got a lot of players. And Great Britain, of course, with Andy and, and Jamie and James and all the other guys, but pretty much Andy. I mean, that's we have to give him the, the credit of that. And, and I remember spending time on his house like four or five years ago. And for him, it was something that he had on his mind. He wanted to, to be part of Davis Cup, of being important in Davis Cup, but they didn't have maybe uh, a second player where they they need someone like to, to help them, like James Ward did against US this year, or then the doubles with, with Jamie and all the other guys, you know. But he already felt like he wanted to do something very important. And, and it's amazing because when he has something on his mind, uh, most of the time he does it. Like he does... He does want to win Wimbledon. He wanted to win it badly, and he did it, and he wanted to win slams, and he won U.S. Open. And I'm pretty much sure that if he continues like this, and he's got still like three, four more years, can still win some more slams. Uh, turning attention to your career, amazingly, I was doing some research for this interview, you retired with a winning record against Federer and Nadal. Oh. And there's only, as far as I can tell, two people that can say that. It's you and Dominic Habati. Mm -hmm. You're in a, a very special mm -hmm. little club. And looking at Federer first, I know you played him in Gestad yeah. years before he became the great champion yeah. that we now know him to be. When you played him in that match, did you see the champion that we see now? Did you think this guy's definitely going to make it? Or did you see potential, but potential that perhaps could remain unfulfilled? No, no. We, I, I felt... That he was special already. Not, not just on that start match, because I played before, I think, uh, uh, the French. And uh, I played like fourth round ones, and then I played quarterfinals. So it was already, uh, Feather was already playing quite well. And I felt that his ball was very heavy, his, his ground strokes, his forehand was special. His serve, he was, uh, you know, hiding the serve, turning up his shoulders very well. His backhand wasn't maybe not to sell it up high, but he was hitting very well and mixing up with his slice. With his slice. And then I, I felt like the speed of his ball was very, very high. And his, his, his movements, they were fast. And also the way when, when you play like a short ball, then the way he react and the way he, he changed the rhythm of the game, the, the pace, it was amazing. So, yeah, I felt already right away that he was like a big star. Do you remember the first time you saw Rafael Nadal and what your impressions were? Did you feel the same about uh -huh. him? Did you feel this guy's special? Yeah, I hit with him like one early morning, winter time in Barcelona, like nine, nine o'clock in a Monday. And he was waiting for me. 
uh, and he was with his agent with Carlos Costa. How old was he then? I think he was 16 or so. And, uh, well, it was freezing in Barcelona and we play outdoors and I went with the coat and, you know, with the scarf and everything and the hat uh, and he was waiting for me like in short sleeves, you know, like t-shirt and I was like, what? You know, I didn't understand anything. So I said to him, so how are you doing? He said, yeah, good. And I said, what are you doing like that? He said, no, I'm ready. I'm ready to hit. And I'm like, wow, he's ready. So I start warming up and then, you know, doing some laps on the court and like that. And I was still cold, but I said, okay, let's, let's start, let's start hitting. So I, I hit the ball and the first ball he hit, he hit it so hard, but so hard. So I stopped the ball and I was like, you're going to hurt yourself. And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm hitting hundred percent since the very first ball. Wow. So I was very impressed. And I felt that this guy was very unique, you know, and, and that impressed me so much. And then, yeah, I played him in Barcelona and in Madrid, but uh, already like an amazing feeling watching him practicing and playing. Yeah. So there's Alex Karetscher talking to Catherine Whitaker, And isn't he fascinating, Catherine? And, and so warmly he speaks about Andy Murray and there at the end there about Rafael Nadal and it's a lovely anecdote, isn't it, about Nadal, the 16-year-old, and, and what he was like. And, and I have to say, it does tally with my early recollections of seeing Nadal. I remember him playing uh, the tournament in Rome just before he won his first French Open. He beat Guillermo Correa in the final in Rome. And I remember he basically didn't really know how things worked that much. And you, you could see him come into the press conferences. And he, he, he was really struggling with his English at the time. He was learning. He was taking lessons. He was trying to get, get a grip on it. And, I, and he came in after this five-hour epic back in the days when they used to have best of five set finals in all in the Masters 1000 event in, in Rome. And it's basically the, the, the final, I think, that, that put a stop to all that because uh, I don't think Guillermo Correa was ever the same again. But Nadal came into his post-match press conference with a big bowl of pasta. And he just sat there and people had asked him a question. And while they were asking the question, he'd be munching and wolfing this pasta down. And then he'd be trying to get the words out straight afterwards while still carb-loading at the same time. But he had no airs and graces, Nadal. I I always thought of him as like a young Tarzan. You know, he was just this long-haired, big-muscled, deeply tanned uh, specimen, of, specimen of a man and, and what an incredible athlete he was and and it's exactly how I remember him what Alex Karecha was saying there and and you, you could hear the, the affection that, that Karecha had for him. Yeah you really could I mean Andy Murray as well we obviously talked about Andy Murray first and I, and I didn't know whether he'd be a bit reluctant to talk about Andy because obviously it's 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 been a couple of years since since they worked together and I, I didn't know how private he wanted to to keep the details of their of their relationship and their time together. You know, often people that work with Andy, they do tend to be quite guarded uh, both during the, the time and afterwards. But his eyes completely lit up just at the mere mention of Andy Murray and every every bone in his body oozed warmth throughout his talking about him. I mean, real... I don't know how to not make it sound corny. I mean, he obviously just loves him. He really does just have so much time for him. And, and he was so natural talking about him, saying 
how closely they're in touch now and and wasn't one to take wanting to take an ounce of credit for for any of Andy's success on on the clay courts this this year i mean he he's so fond of him i really can't describe just how his his face looked when he was talking about him he really so much affection there and and the similar when he when i asked him about rafa really and his recollections of rafa as a 16 year old and and he i i said you know do you remember the first time you met rafa or or played with rafa of practice and he instantly recalled this anecdote it's obviously something that really stuck in his mind he didn't he didn't arm and off for a moment and go oh yeah i can't quite you know it, it was this moment and he remembers it. It was imprinted on his memory because Rafa made such an enormous impression and it completely tallies with our assessment over the last 10 or so years that these guys at the top of the game are not really human. I mean, <laughs> Karech's description of, of Rafa showing up in a T-shirt when when Alex was wearing a coat, a scarf and a hat I mean that he was he was hinting it, you know. This bloke just isn't really human in the way that even he was. He was an elite level athlete at the time, and he was sixteen year old Rafael Nadal, not even feeling the cold. You know, I think that's what he was getting at when he was saying that he's taken he Federer now Djokovic have taken this game to a different level of superhuman skill endurance and physicality do you know if I, I think if I got onto the court and one of those was my opponent I think I'd wear a hat coat scarf and a disguise <laughs> try and get out of there somehow it's, I, I, you're pretty recognizable David I think you think your height might give it away oh um, yeah maybe you're right Damn, I knew there was something I was forgetting. Now, we'll finish off you with a... look like a tall bloke in a fake moustache. <laughs> well, you know, I've always wanted a moustache and I can't grow one myself. So, you know, maybe that would be the way forward for the future. <laughs> Let's finish off with some questions from our listeners at Tennis Podcast. Jack Smith says, How do you think Djokovic has improved this season compared to his 2011 season? And that's a, an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's similar in terms of actual raw achievement that was a very spectacular one because he won the first 40 odd matches of the year wasn't it I think that that an element of that was he he was brilliant no question but I think as well Jack I think he took everybody by surprise I think Nadal and Federer and Murray and all the other players had known a certain Novak Djokovic at a certain level for a long long time and they were used to that level he elevated his level to something different and nobody else could live with it at the time I think everybody else subsequently made adjustments for the 2011 Djokovic which is what I think happens somebody does something amazing and the rest of them uh, change something in their games and adapt and and come to terms with it and figure out a way to compete against it and I think that that is what Djokovic has done over the last couple of years particularly bringing Boris Becker on board who I think we've got to give a lot of credit to for the Novak Djokovic we see in front of us right now, the resilience, the the self-belief in the tight moments, the way he puffs his chest out against a guy like Nadal, who used to just dwarf him in terms of physicality. Now, Novak Djokovic looks the bigger man, maybe not in terms of sheer muscularity, but in terms of his presence on the court, that's the big difference for me this year. The The tennis is is metronomic in its in its brilliance, in its consistency. But there's an aura 
about Novak Djokovic right now. Yeah, I, I would agree with all your assessments. I also think technically he is a better player than he was in 2011. I think his serve has more on it. Uh, I think, I don't know whether that's down to technical improvements. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Boris Becker has made minor adjustments to his serve technically, which would undoubtedly have, have improved it. I, I think his, his serve is a stronger weapon now than it's ever been. Um, and as you say, all, all the other all the other improvements as well. And and at, at that level of the game, a, a fraction of a percentage point is the difference. That's all it is. So even if he's just made a minute improvement to his forehand or his backhand or anything, that's enough to make the difference between him being world number one and world number two or three slams a year and two slams a year. So unquestionably, he's a better player than he was in 2011. Uh, Biggish Mouse says, "What is Murray's best opportunity for a slam next year?" For 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 Biggish Mouse, it's got to be the Australian Open with the baby on the way. After the rest of the year, the rest of the year is unknown because of having a baby. I don't think that that's necessarily true, is it, Catherine? I'd actually say the opposite. Having had kids myself, I'd say the Australian Open, with all the worry and concern about when it might arrive, is the big is the big problem. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised either way. I wouldn't be surprised if if Murray came out and won the Australian Open, but equally I wouldn't be surprised if or 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 it would be completely forgivable if he was ever so slightly distracted at the Australian Open. I certainly wouldn't put my chips on that one. As, Which one's he going to win, Catherine? Best chance. I'd probably go for Wimbledon if I had to pick one right this minute is what I would say how about you um I would say he is going to win the US Open there you go I think his whole year is going to be turned on uh, on its head from what it has been this year and uh, as a result of of uh, I, I think the Davis Cup final is likely to take a fair bit out of him I think he is going to have a lot going on in the first part of the year I'm sure he'll have a good Australian Open I don't think it'll be enough I think Novak Djokovic is is as close to unbeatable a player as you can get at the Australian Open so he goes in as a massive favorite there for me um, and uh, yeah I think he certainly could win Wimbledon Murray but I, I'd say his best chances will come at the back end of the year personally Susie says do you think Garbinia Muguruza will win a slam next year Catherine Whittaker go Oh, oof. oh, goodness me. There's so many unknowns, aren't there, on the WTA Tour. But uh, she really could, as I say. No pressure, Garbina. Uh, it would be too much pressure if I also now predicted her to win a slam. But she, she, the, I don't see any reason why she couldn't, actually. I think she will. I think she'll win a slam next year. There you go, uh, in 2016. And finally, Jonathan Liu of The Telegraph, who... We uh, are partners with here, of course, on the te- on the tennis podcast. Says, what is the point of this part of the season? Wouldn't it be better to play the tour finals now and have a proper break? The point is that people all over the world love tennis and uh, deserve to see tennis. The point is, there's a lot more to it th- than just what we think and just. The preservation of, of the players, etc. There's so many things to it. I, I can see that argument, but I can also see the fact that, well, if you just chop off the Asian swing, then then nobody in Asia gets to see any live tennis. And uh, that's not really fair, is it? Because there's an appetite for it over there. And OK, if you say, well, switch out some 
some events earlier in the season for for some Asian events. Well, then you have sort of travel issues and what other events do you sacrifice? You know, once events become established, it's you can't just say sorry, mate, you, that that one's got to go because it, it, the players are getting a bit tired. You know, it's difficult to to reverse the train once it's in motion. And I think it is important for the growth of the sport. I think it's fabulous that the growth of tennis in, in Asia in recent years because it's it's a sport that re- there's no reason why it can't be appreciated the world over. So, I, I of course, I see the argument. It's difficult to see players struggling physically. He's saying he would reorganise a little bit and have the end of the year now and then have uh, those events leading into the Australian Open, the Asian swing. OK, but is his argument not that the the bottom line is the uh, season needs to be shorter, though? In which case, who, which events is he going to chop? He's questioning the point of things like the Paris Masters. I, I see that, you know, in the overall narrative of the season. I un- I completely understand that point, but... Okay, you make the call to the Paris Masters and tell them it's not happening anymore. To all those fans in Paris that, you know, can't get into Roland Garros and and want you know, I I'm I'm just making the, I'm playing devil's advocate, I suppose, of, of how many factors there are in play with the tour as it as it stands and as it is, and uh, it's it's not as simple as that. And actually, I do feel as though. The thing is, most of these things have been considered, have been talked about. The reason the calendar is what it is, is for a reason. You're going to have to make some fundamental changes in order to achieve any change on a on a grander scale. And somebody's going to get hurt by that. Now, maybe that's, maybe that's the right thing to do, maybe it's not. But I think that that's ultimately the reason, isn't it, Catherine? Yeah, I agree, and I and I also think if you're if you're making the argument for a shorter season or, or for for jiggling around the season on the basis of preservation of the players, and I I absolutely understand. Of course, it's a tough watch to see see players flagging or getting injured at this stage of the season. I do see that argument as hugely weakened by the fact that most of them, almost all of them, play quite a number of exhibitions throughout the year and most of them now are playing the Indian Tennis Premier League at the end of the season. I do think that that weakens that argument considerably. I know there's an enormous amount of money in all of that and I don't blame them or judge them for doing it. I do just think it weakens the argument for the curtailing of the tennis season quite significantly. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. Catherine, I think we'd better let you get to bed, hadn't we? Because you've been off uh, gallivanting around Europe with the uh, with the tennis players on the ATP Champions Tour. It's pretty late at night now, though, of course, because uh, Catherine's back in London. It has been a joy talking to you all on the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Thank you for listening. Do give us a review on iTunes. Do subscribe on iTunes. Do get in touch with us at Tennis Podcasts. Get in touch and uh, be part of the Tennis Podcast and send us your questions. Anything you want to know, we'll do our best to answer. All the best. We'll speak to you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 